Luke 9, verses 37 through 45. On the next day, when they had come down from the mountain, a great crowd met him. And behold, a man from the crowd cried out, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only child. And behold, a spirit seizes him, and he suddenly cries out. It convulses him so that he foams at the mouth and shatters him and will hardly leave him. And I begged your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and bear with you? Bring your son here. While he was coming, the demon threw him to the ground and convulsed him. But Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy and gave him back to his father. And all were astonished at the majesty of God. But while they were all marveling at everything he was doing, Jesus said to his disciples, let these words sink into your ears. The son of man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. But they did not understand the saying, and it was concealed from them so that they might not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask him about this saying. All right. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father God, again, we thank you for this time. God, we thank you for, for all your many blessings on our congregation. Um, God, we thank you that, um, during this, this, uh, time of COVID, um, and as we are, as we are watching the numbers drop in our county and, and things are, are getting back to at least as normal as they were before the holiday season, God, we thank you for, um, the blessings, um, that you have given us in those, in those places. Uh, we thank you for, uh, the health and well-being that we have had. God, we, uh, we, we pray that you would continue to watch over us. Um, God, that you would continue to watch over us as a congregation as, as we move into this new year and as, as new things happen. Um, God, we thank you for your blessing thus far. Father, we ask that as we come to this time, um, of opening your word and looking into the gospel of Luke, that, that you would help us to understand it rightly, that through the Holy Spirit, you would shine a light into our hearts and our minds. God, that you would shine a light on this text. God, that, that you would speak to our hearts through the Holy Spirit, um, and that we would understand it rightly. We would see the places where we have misunderstood who you are. We have misunderstood the gospel, that we have misunderstood our own hearts. God, that you would show us the places, um, that we need to, um, God, be sharpened when it comes to, uh, following you, um, places where, uh, God, we need to be softened, um, where, where, uh, when it comes to following you. God, just that you would use your word to shape your people. Uh, that's what we ask. Uh, we thank you for all these things, God. We thank you for this time. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay. Um, so we are continuing in our study of, of the gospel of Luke and, and all these passages as, I mean, obviously, as you would assume, all of these things in the gospel of Luke are, are connected. Um, but these passages are particularly connected to the, uh, the, uh, passages 
Does that sound better? Yeah, there we go. Um, they are con- particularly connected to the passages that are around them, okay? And so sometimes in 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 the Gospels and, and really throughout Scripture in general, maybe there are places where there may be a story here, a parable here, a miracle here, and it's not specifically connected to the immediate um, context uh, uh Uniquely, but it is here, and so all of the all these passages relate to each other in different ways. Um, and I think the themes here are things that we've already touched on a little bit, but we will we will dig into again. And, and here's a, here's a, just sort of a little aside statement. So as I read this passage, I thought, you know, I think what's going on in this passage is really the same thing that was taught a few weeks ago in another passage, or at least very similar. Should I just do something else? Because we've already talked about that passage, right? But then this is this is the way I read the Bible. Is I go, yeah, yeah, but but God put it in there twice, right? He told this story, and then a few sections later, he told a story with a similar kind of principle. That's because he, there's something there that he wants us to understand, something that the disciples were missing, something that we probably miss and we need to hear. And so in some ways, we're going to be looking back at uh, the same things that we saw in the feeding of the 5,000, but with some unique things going on in this text, too. And so I'll start with this question. Um, have you ever been let down by someone in the church? Okay. Now, maybe a leader, maybe a friend. Uh, maybe somebody you didn't even know that well, but they were somebody who you had put a certain level of trust in. Have you ever been let down by someone in church? I hope that the answer is no, but I will assume that for most of us, the answer is probably yes. And now sometimes we have to admit to ourselves, sometimes those disappointments are because of our own unreal expectations, okay? It, it's amazing um, what people expect the church to be and do and what people expect Christians to be and do, right? And oftentimes those things are not only mutually contradictory, um, but, but impossible for anybody to maintain, right? So sometimes it's because of unrealistic expectations. But at the same time, we have to acknowledge as a church body and as individuals in the church that sometimes the church just drops the ball, right? Um, Something should have been done. Something should have been handled in a certain way. People should have behaved a certain way, and they didn't. Maybe it's in leadership. Maybe it's in a group, a uh, small group, or or some kind of ministry like that. Maybe it's just uh, maybe it's in a, a benevolence kind of ministry where there's a need, kind of like what we're going to see in this passage. Um, maybe it's just an individual in the church who who does something or whatever. But some way the church has dropped the ball. But we're going to look at a story that basically talks about that. Look at a story where that happens, a failure by the disciples. And then we're going to ask the question kind of why did it happen that way and what were the consequences and then kind of where do we go from there, all right? And so, so notice this, and this relates directly back to what we talked about last week with our passage about living on the mountaintops and then coming down, okay? And this is what we see at the beginning of this test, uh, text. Life goes on in the valley. Okay, so you remember what I talked about last week about how God gives us these mountaintop experiences for us to learn and to glean something, but then we can't stay there. We're meant to take those things back down into the work and the trial and the difficulty and sometimes even the darkness of the valley. Well, guess what, man? They step off the mountaintop and they're back in the valley. Verse 37, on the next day when they had come down from the mountain, a great crowd met him. And behold, a man from the crowd cried out, teacher, I beg you to look at my son. He is my only child, and behold, a spirit seizes him, and he suddenly cries out. 
it convulses him so that he foams at the mouth and shatters him. That's a, that's a crazy phrase. And it will hardly leave him alone. Right? So again, what do we see? They come off this mountain and, and, and no matter what, man, life is going to punch you in the face when you get back to the valley. Okay, that's what life is going to do. It's going to punch you in the face from the get go. I mean, imagine what it would have been like for uh, for 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 Peter and and James and John to come down. They're like, I saw Moses yesterday. Right. I saw Jesus transfigured and his glory shined. I heard the audible voice of God yesterday. And then now. Man, we're back to demon possession, right? We're back to the, to the difficulty and the brokenness and the, and, and the harshness of, of, of life in the valley. So this man comes bringing his son with him who is, who is demon possessed, right? And again, that language is strong. It's desperate. It's, it's interesting kind of phrasing, right? Now, again, that word that this, this demon shatters him. What the idea is, is, He's talking about how the demon will throw this kid to the ground the way you would take some sort of glass something and like shatter it on the floor, right? He says, man, this is what the demon does to my son. He just throws him around and breaks him and beats him. Probably a teenager, right? We don't know exactly, but probably a teenager because Mark says that this he has been suffering with this from his childhood. So years long, he's been suffering with this demonic possession. This is life in the valley. Right, uh, life on the mountain stop is still still true. What happened on the mountain is still true, but but we're back in the valley now, okay? And we see what has happened in the midst of this this difficulty. There's been a failure on the part of the church. And so in verse forty, it says, "The man says to Jesus, I begged your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. Okay, they couldn't cast the demon out. Now, why did this happen?" Well, this terrible situation is going on, right? And it's, and it's always disheartening, I think, when those who are supposed to be able to help end up dropping the ball in some way. When the people who ought to be the instruments of God's blessing end up not being God's blessing. And here's the deal, man. We notice this, that this, and a theme of all the gospels is that the disciples keep messing up. Right, the disciples are always in these situations where they have an opportunity to kind of do the right thing, or 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 be the kind of people that that we know Christ wants us to be, and then they just aren't a lot. Um, and again, we shouldn't look towards them with derision because that's us. We are we are playing the role of those disciples in the story. And Jesus is showing us that man, even the disciples, even his closest followers, have a lot to learn about what it looks like to follow Jesus and to minister in His name. And so, let me tell you what I think kind of happened in this story. Uh, and again, and it kind of connects to what we talked about with the feeding of the 5,000. I think the disciples thought we can handle this on our own. So the, the, the nine disciples are waiting at the base of the mountain, probably with Jesus entourage of, of a few other dozen people there. And then these people start coming, looking for Jesus and looking for him to do miracles. And I expect that what happened is this man came looking for Jesus and the disciples said something like, well, Jesus isn't in right now, but is there something I could help you with? And the guy said, no, actually, I, I don't. I, I need to get to Jesus. You see, my son is demon-possessed, and I need Jesus to help him. 
And the disciples said, well, actually, we can take care of that for you. I don't know if you knew this, but we're actually the disciples. We're experienced at casting out demons. And the guy's like, really? Is, is that for real? He's like, sure. We were actually commissioned specially by Jesus to go out and tell the gospel, to do miracles, and to cast out demons. And he's like, you, you were? And he's like, sure, we do this all the time. This is kind of our job. We would be happy. We're pros at this. We would be happy to cast this demon out of your child. I have a feeling like the disciples were like, they were kind of excited about it. And again, I'm reading into the text a little bit, but I have a feeling that they were excited about the fact that Jesus and the three were going to come back down off this mountain and the disciples were going to kind of be like, you know, no big deal. Jesus has some people come demon possessed. We took care of it. They're fine. They're good. You know, they were, I have a feeling like it kind of went like that, except that's not what happened, right? They have casted out demons before. That's something that they have accomplished before, but they are unable to do it this time around for some reason. I think probably, again, the case is the disciples feel like they have arrived in some way. And in their pride, they probably think that they can do many of these things on their own, but they've missed something. And it's, and it's one of the, I think, probably great kind of paradoxes of the Christian walk and experience and, and, and life. And, and that is this, is that, the stronger we get in the faith, the more dependent we are supposed to be on Jesus. So the stronger we get in the faith, the more dependent we are supposed to be on Jesus, not less, okay? And, and again, our instinct, the way it seems like everything else in the world works is the opposite, right? The better I am at my job, then, then the less help I'll need from other people. Um, the more confident I am in those situations. But that's not what happens in the Christian faith. The closer we are, the stronger we are in the faith, the more dependent we are to be on Jesus. God certainly wants us to grow and to learn and to develop and to hone our skills and to gain experience, right? Those are, But those things are never meant to replace a daily kind of dependence on God. So certainly there have always been people who kind of thought some of these things, but in a, in a wrong way, Baptists are bad about this. The idea that some people will say, yeah, yeah, that's right. We don't want you to have any education or any knowledge or any experience. We just want to throw you in there and we're going to let the Holy Spirit, you know, do these things. That's not what's going on here either, right? Like we're not saying that, that knowledge or training or experience are bad things, Um that would be silly to think that God wants us to remain ignorant, okay? We, we, that's not what we see in the scriptures. But there's always the danger that that, man, that knowledge that we get, that experience that we get, will lead us into self-sufficiency. There's always that danger. And, and I think the reason that danger is there is this, because it's basically true, okay? Um, our experience and knowledge and ability makes us more self-sufficient. Um, it's a scary reality, and I've, I've kind of said this before, I don't need God to preach a sermon. And you don't need God to run a small group. Uh, and you don't need God um, uh, to do all kinds of any number of things. Okay? But there's a problem there, right? Is in my self-sufficiency, I can think, yeah, I'm capable of getting up here and doing opening a Bible and, and reading you some passages and talking about it for an hour, but there's going to be something missing there. I, I, somebody said this line, and I can't remember where I got it from, but I had it written in, in my notes, and it's this. The problem is 
we get to a point where we have more answers than prayers. And I just like that. I, I thought it stuck. It had a, it had a, uh, there was, there was something that, that was, that rang true about that. The problem is we get to a point where we have more answers than prayers. And I think that's what's going on in this passage. What the faith requires of us is a constant, prayerful dependence on God. As we move, as we work, as we bless, as we are sustained, as we are encouraged by these things, to always be connected to God. And yet, that seems to be exactly what the disciples have forgotten in this passage. And we see that a little better in the Gospel of Mark in some ways. And we're going to get to that in just a second. But but we'll start off by asking this next question. What are the consequences of that? What are the consequences of us forgetting that our sufficiency uh, is in Jesus, right? Our dependency is in, in Jesus. What are the consequences of that? Well, the first one is, is that the church ends up failing in its job. So again, verse 40, he says, I begged your disciples to cast out the demon, but they could not. That first reliance, uh, consequence of self-reliance is failure on the part of the church. What we want to get done doesn't get done, right? The, the energy that we put into things is wasted. Our efforts end up being in vain. Our vision for what could be accomplished never comes to fruition. The psalmist talks about this, right? Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build labor in vain. Because it is God who does the work at the core of what we want to accomplish. And so again, I can preach a sermon, but I can't make anybody believe it. And you can lead a small group, but you can't make somebody apply those things to their lives and have that connection change them. We can fill the pews by any number of of things, but we can't make people followers of Jesus. God has to do all those things. And here's the problem, man. There's real need here. Right, This guy shows up who's got a real problem, a real person with real pain. But in their self-sufficiency, they are powerless to help. because, And they they end up failing to touch this person's life. And so our self-sufficiency, first off, just leads in general to the failure of the church. The church will not work. It will not do what it's supposed to do if it is a self-reliant church, full of self-reliant people. But the second thing we notice, another consequence of this, is we receive the rebuke of Jesus. We are rebuked by Jesus for our self-sufficiency. Verse 41, Jesus answered them, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and bear with you? Okay, man, that is not the way T-shirt Jesus talks to people. Okay? That is not the way that we think about Jesus, the, the, the generic, you know, flower child hippie Jesus talking to people. Mark even, there's, there's a little bit of nuance in the way Mark says it that I think is even a little harsher. You unbelieving generation, how long will I be with you? How long must I put up with you? Okay, right? I mean, that's harsh language. For the disciples, there is rebuke. That is for the church, there is rebuke. And man, there's a lot of emotion and anger and sorrow and annoyance and regret and frustration tied up in those three little phrases. Oh, faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and how long am I to bear with you? 
The lesson that Jesus is trying to teach them again now is the same lesson, at least a function, that they missed with the feeding of the 5,000. And please get this. The disciples keep on messing up and missing it because it is our nature to keep on messing up and missing it. That this is the same thing that we do. We are the disciples. We keep on missing this same thing in our own lives. Maybe we have a little bit of blessing, a little bit of success, and then we ignore or discard Jesus. Here's, here's something that is, this is something that I think is the case, and we'll see one day. I have a feeling that one day we are going to get to heaven. And we are going to be able to look back across our lives and we are going to see all the difficulties and the tragedies and the crises that we went through. And then we are going to discover that many of those were directly, intentionally, sovereignly from the hand of God for the express purpose of knocking us out of our self-reliance, for the express purpose of, of shaking us out of our counting on ourselves and not counting on us, reminding us or intending to remind us that we're not in control, we don't have it all together, and we can't do it on our own. But notice, again, that it's not only a rebuke, and this is another thing, man, I, I love this passage for for the, the uh, contrary picture that we see of Jesus in it, okay? I love the fact that we see Jesus from a little different light than maybe the way we often see Jesus. Because notice this, he doesn't just rebuke the disciples, but he seems to say, I rebuke this entire generation, which includes the Father. The Father is rebuked too. And again, Mark makes this a little more clear. We see the picture in the story play out a little more clearly in Mark's gospel. So let me read it to you from Mark's gospel. So, so the, the whole story is played out the same way. And, and then after Jesus has, has rebuked this generation, he turns to the Father and he says this. How long has this been happening to him? And Jesus asked his father, Jesus asked his father, and the man said, from childhood. And many times it has thrown him into the fire or the water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Okay? If you can do anything. You know, Jesus, I came here looking for help. And these bozos at the bottom of the mountain, they don't seem to have been able to do anything. Uh, they talked a big game, and then nothing happened. So I'm kind of ready to go home. I'm just ready to blow this whole thing off. But you know what, Jesus, if you can do anything, could you please help my son? Now, here's what's interesting. Again, we get in trouble when we read tone into the Bible, but it's hard not to read tone into some places. Then Jesus said to him, if you can, if you can, Everything is possible to the one who believes. Okay, that's what he says back to the father. The father's like, yeah, if you can help, do something. And Jesus is like, if I can, if I can help, anything is possible for the person who believes. Then immediately the man says, this is the passage where he says, he cries out, I do believe, but help my unbelief, right? Remember that that line, right? This is what I think is going on. I think the man, he has to backpedal all of a sudden. Okay, because he has brought Jesus' power and his authority into question, into doubt. But here's the deal. Notice Jesus, he doesn't give an apology for any of these things, right? Like he doesn't do this. And and you can imagine this scene because I think it's what I would do if one of you guys had 
done something boneheaded. And then this random stranger had come to me and said, Ash, can you believe what those people in your church did? Because I think I would say this. I'd say, man, I'm so sorry. I'm sorry that happened. I, I just, it's so out of character. I just don't know what, is there any way we can make that up to you? That's what I would do. That's not what Jesus does though. You know what Jesus does? He, he basically says to the guy, if there's anything wrong here, it's on you, buddy. Your faith is the problem here. You are part of this weak and twisted and unbelieving generation that doesn't understand how all this stuff fits together. Now, again, the tone, I, I, it may be the truth that I'm reading too much into the words that Mark has. But when the father casts doubt on Jesus' ability to heal his son, Jesus is essentially saying, excuse me, if things have, hap- not, have not worked out the way you wanted them to, let me assure you it is not because of my power. Uh, it is because of your lack of belief. And so here's the deal. There is a rebuke for the father. And I, and I think, maybe I'm wrong, but I feel like a lot of people who have walked away from the church because they have been let down by the church in the back of their mind have this idea that one day they are going to stand before God in judgment and God's going to say, how come you walked away? How come you weren't faithful? How come you abandoned um, the church and the faith? And, and they're going to be able to say, well, you know, there were some people back there that weren't very nice to me. And that Jesus is going to go, you know, I'm so sorry. I hate that that happened. Why don't you just come on in, buddy? Everything's going to be fine. Except that's not what Jesus does. That's not the way he talks to this guy. Jesus isn't moved by that. He basically says, man, if you wanted help, you should have come to the source. And that's the exact problem that the disciples have too. Their problem was they thought they could do it on their own. They didn't come to the source either. Jesus is basically saying you're not called to follow the Christians. You are called to follow the Christ. Now, again, that does not negate our responsibility. Okay, so don't hear me saying, oh, well, it's, I mean, we're all in trouble, but it's really on the, you know, that's not what I'm saying. Our actions sometimes can lead people away from Christ. Okay, lead people away from the church. And that is a travesty. Um, to to God's graciousness and to the gospel that we would be the agents that push people away. You know, when Jesus is talking about, at least in the case of little children, he says, and if you, if you cause one of these to stumble, what's the consequence? You would be better off if a millstone was tied around your neck and you were thrown into the sea. That's the consequence of this. Now, again, we're, we're moving into adults here, but I have to believe that Jesus is still saying, if you are the, are, are the, the, the thing that, that is, is acting to push people away from me, then there are consequences for that, right? That's not, that's not something. So it doesn't negate our responsibility that Jesus is mad at the father as well, that has rebuke for the father. It exacerbates our responsibility, I think. And so here's the deal. So, so Jesus kind of presents these points and then he has this little added on place. It's interesting. Mark does not have this, this piece, although Mark has unique content in the passage. But again, I think it's what, uh, it, it, Jesus is, is, is pointing us to. And there's another really cool little phrase that just seems like it stands out to me. So it says, by while, so Jesus heals the kid, casts the demon out, and, and he's, and he's, he's okay. And then it says, but while they were all marveling at everything that he was doing, Jesus said this to his disciples, quote, let these words sink into your ears, okay? Now, again, when I read that passage, if you read the Gospels a lot, that's not the kind of thing that Jesus says a lot, right? It just has a weird ring to it, 
Um, so much so that if I was not somebody that, be- if I didn't believe in the, in the authority and the, and the, the unity of the scriptures, if I believed that this was just a book that some dude put together over hundreds of thousands, whatever, you know, kind of deal, I might go, yeah, man, I don't know if that line was in the original. I think somebody just added that in at some point, but I don't believe that. I believe that every word, in fact, what did we say earlier at the beginning of, of, uh, in, in our, in our, uh, creedal reading time, right? That, that is, the scriptures are without error. Okay, and so Jesus said this. He says, "Let these words sink into your ears," uh, which is if funny if it wasn't terrifying that Jesus was saying these things to his disciples. And then he says, "This, the Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men." Period. Okay. Now you might go, "All right, what is that? What's the exact connection there? Why does he say in the context of this failure? Why does he say?" Listen to me. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. And it says they didn't understand the saying. It was concealed from him so that they may not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask him. Again, those little clues like that would indicate to me that I'm right in reading tone into this, right? They're not like, oh, Jesus wasn't like hunky-dory on this. Like, they were scared to talk to him after this for a little bit because he was uh, he was agitated by this incident. But I think this is what the reason why he says it. He says, the Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. I think he's saying, guys, I'm not going to be with you much longer. I'm going to be delivered into the hands of men. I've already told you about the consequences of, of, of me being the true Messiah. I'm going to be rejected, persecuted, arrested, executed. And I'm not going to be here to clean up your messes. Okay, now, now hold up right there because don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying, that's not exactly right to say it that way. Because we're not saying, cool, we need to get to the point where we can handle this stuff without Jesus. No, that's the opposite of what we're saying. But Jesus is making the point, I think, again, he's, he's pointing us to not independence from Jesus, but reliance on Jesus. Jesus is reminding them, he's saying, you won't be able to see me very soon. You won't be able to walk over and pull on my sleeve when you've messed up and not done something right. And if you're having problems trusting in me right now, when I'm sleeping in the tent next to you, you're going to have a whole lot of problems trusting in me and relying on me when you can't see me anymore. After I have been turned over to the authorities, after I have been executed, buried, resurrected, and ascended. And so I think the deal is, is Mark actually clarifies the account a little bit more to draw our attention to that. In verse 28 of of Mark's account, he says this, and when he had entered the house, the disciples asked him privately, right? When they get away from the crowd and they're like, and it says, why could we not cast out that demon? They ask him, why could we not do it? And you know what Jesus says? He says, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. Okay, so what is that? What's the significance there? I think that that prayer and Mark's little addition of that is pointing us to something. It's saying prayer is that picture and an act that demonstrates our reliance on God. It's the main thing in our lives that demonstrates our reliance on God. Therefore, the faith in God uh, that is a prayerless faith is going to be a weak faith. A faith that can't accomplish the things that God has called us to do. Prayerlessness 
is basically self-reliance. It is proof of your self-reliance. It's proof of the fact that you think you can pretty much handle this thing on your own, that you've got enough wisdom and enough knowledge and enough experience. It indicates your lack of, one, the reality of the situation, and two, what God has called you to. And, and let me say this, as I've said several times now, we are these people, we are the disciples, but more importantly, I am the disciples, okay? Um, I, can, I can confess to you that I am more like the disciples in this passage than I want to admit. I, I've probably shared numerous times with y'all over the years about how I tend to, when it comes to spiritual disciplines, I tend to gravitate towards reading of the scripture as opposed to praying, okay? Obviously, there's more to both of those and other spiritual disciplines, but those are certainly two central ones, right? I gravitate towards reading the scripture, man. I, I enjoy reading the scripture. I feel empowered by reading the scripture. I feel like I get stuff out of reading the scripture. I don't feel that way when I go to the Lord in prayer oftentimes. It feels empty. It feels like they're bouncing off the ceiling. It feels like there is a... a, a something missing there, right? And so consequently, oftentimes I find myself not being prayerful for those very reasons. Okay. But I think there's a deeper spiritual issue going on in my life. And it's exactly what's going on here is there's a level of self-reliance is that I basically come to a point oftentimes in my daily life where I'm like, all right, I can handle whatever's going on today. And if I can't handle it at the very least, I can stoic it right? I can, I can weather it. I can bear through until this thing is over and whatever. And so I'm probably fine on my own. And again, not, not consciously in a way, right? I don't just sit there and go, I'm not asking God. I'm not asking for his help. That's not what I do. I just sort of go, it doesn't occur to me to ask God because I think I can handle this thing on my own. Going to the word makes me feel prepared. It makes me feel capable. It makes me feel knowledgeable. And all those things are good. God wants us to be capable and prepared and knowledgeable. Those things are, are right, but they're intended to be paired with prayer. Because, you know, what the Bible says in 1 Corinthians, it says knowledge has a tendency to puff us up. Okay? When we just take in knowledge but do not rely on God in terms of dependence and prayer, what ends up happening is we usually get puffed up. We usually get self-reliant. We think, oh, yeah, I know a lot, and I can handle a lot. But it's never meant to be that way. It's always meant to be paired with our dependence. So the, the stronger I am the faith, the more knowledgeable, the more, more capable, the more experienced should also be me being more dependent, more reliant, more focused on connecting to God. So the answer, again, is not to ignore knowledge and experience, but to always make sure that we are remembering where our source is. Who we, who these things are coming through, and that is Jesus. And so here's the deal. Many of you guys have probably started a, uh, a Bible reading plan for the year, right? I, I hope you have. Um, I hope that you are, um, uh, even if you're not going about it by like a plan kind of way, that you are attempting to be in the Word on a daily uh, basis, at least a regular basis, um, so that you can interact with God. But what I would encourage you to do is, is to say this, man. It can't just be about you growing in knowledge through the Scriptures that that should be paired with other things. And honestly, I'd say it's not just to be paired with prayer either, although that's the other big piece that that's, makes sense in this passage, that we should each day be going to God in his word and learning from him, listening to him speak to us through his word. Then we should be going to him in prayer. Um, 
being real about our dependence and our need for him and all these things like that. And then there's these other spiritual disciplines. We should be serving. We should be evangelizing, right? Other ways that we can, uh, if we don't do those things, we're never going to be the people that God is making us into and calling us to be. But anyway, what, all that to say is what I would encourage you is, is to consider these things in your own prayer lives, particularly, particularly in your own prayer lives. The fact that God is calling us to a daily reliance on him. He's not calling us to self-sufficiency. You're not a stronger Christian because you can handle these things on your own. You are a stronger Christian when you know that you need not only Jesus Christ, but the means of grace that he has put in your life, which include the word, which include prayer, which include the fellowship of believers and any number of things. Okay. We recognize our need by leaning into those things and not, not the other way around. We don't get too strong for them. Does that make sense? That's the abrupt end of this sermon. I don't have any kind of ease out. Okay. That's just the hard line stop. Okay. So what I want to do is go to the Lord in a time of prayer. Okay. And, 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 Essentially, ask him to do these things in our hearts, okay? Rely on God in prayer right now to make us more reliant on God in prayer in our daily lives, okay? So let's just take a minute. Let's go to the Lord um, and do some business with him, and and then we'll I'll close us in, in corporate prayer, and then uh, Marlon will come back up and, and close us in, in worship. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, as we, as we come to your word, God, as we come to you in prayer, God, as we look around at the world around us, the, the, the thing that keeps on popping into my mind is that our problem is self, uh, that our problem is our continual reliance on self, that our, it is our self-righteousness, that it is our self-justification, that it is our self-focus, um, God, that we care more about ourselves and think more of ourselves and devote more to ourselves um, than is good or right or warranted um, or wise. Father, we are fools to think that we are in and of ourselves anything uh, worthy or sufficient. So, Father, we ask that you would help us to to acknowledge that, to feel our need and reliance upon you. God, I ask that we would be like children. My children don't, don't come to me in the morning for, for um, food because I have to guilt them into it or because I have to convince them that they need those things. No, they come because they know that, that I am the source for them. Um, there is a, there's a natural recognition of the relationship there. God, I ask that you would do that in my heart and that I would see you for those things that I would know that, um, despite the fact that I'm a, I'm, I'm an adult and I've, I've got certain kinds of, of, of experience and, and wisdom, God, that I'm incapable, um, of living my life apart from you. I'm ca- incapable of, of loving my wife and, and 
loving my children and providing for my congregation and shepherding them. God, of, of being a neighbor and a friend and, and a stranger and a citizen. God, I, I'm incapable of doing these things rightly if I'm counting on myself to do them. Father, that is the spirit of our nation. It is the spirit of the age in which we live in. Uh, we live in an era of self, and maybe the case is, is that we have always lived uh, in an era of self. But Father, we ask that you would mortify that in our lives. Um, as your sons and daughters, that you would press us into an obedience, God, and a, and a recognition of our, of our necessary daily reliance on you. Father, help us to do that. Help me to do that. Um, we ask these things in your son's name, Jesus. Amen. Please stand and sing the closing song.
just to read the lyrics to that song because that was I think that was about perfect too. Uh, Let not conscience make you linger, nor of fitness fondly dream. All the fitness he requires is to feel your need of him. This he gives you, tis the Spirit's rising beam, right? That's exactly what we are asking for. The Spirit's rising beam is this idea of like, <laughs> it is the Spirit shining this thing and saying, hey, you're not enough, uh, but Jesus is enough. Um, it is it is that realization um, that we are looking for. Man, every line of that passage, every of that verse of that song is is perfect um, for what we just talked about. So, good job. Um, let me close uh, with a benediction, and uh, man, we're out of here. Probably you're gonna you're gonna be able to watch the Super Bowl and all that. So, I'm sure that was not on your mind. Nobody cared about that. You didn't even know it was Super Bowl Sunday. Um, but here's this benediction as you go. Um, may the Lord bless you and keep you, make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you, turn his face towards you and give you peace. And we'll see you next week. Uh-huh.